And go with me once again to Luke chapter 2. Just this week, we commemorated December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day. Another important date, May 8th, 1945. Do you know what that date is? May 8th, 1945. It is Victory in Europe Day. It is the day that the U.S. and Britain and our allies accepted the unconditional surrender from Nazi Germany to end World War II in Europe. It was a day marked by huge crowds celebrating in New York's Times Square, in the Central Square of London, all the way down to Buckingham Palace. Politicians gave speeches, parades were given to honor the soldiers. Peace had been won over what seemed at first an unstoppable evil. How very different from a quiet night in a Judean countryside. The scene of the greatest proclamation of peace ever made. (laughs) Almighty Creator, offended by the rebellion of His creatures, had come to make peace. The righteous judge who must carry out justice on sin had come to offer unconditional pardon. This is the biggest news in history, and fitting that it would be announced by angels from heaven, and yet it's heard by only a few humble shepherds from one of the lowest classes in society. Meanwhile, the religious leaders in Israel, the rulers of the Roman Empire, remained oblivious to the greatest event in history. God had entered our little human existence. So I want to look at this story in Luke 2 in four pretty basic points. We're going to look at the recipients of this message. Then we'll look at the messengers. And then finally, the message itself. And then last, the response to the message. So the recipients, the messengers, the message, the response. So let's look at the recipients of this message in verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. All right, to feel the magnitude of what's happening this night, you need to realize God has not spoken for 400 years. I mean, since the creation of Adam for over 3,000 years, God had been speaking to humanity. He spoke in person to Abraham. He spoke out of a bush and out of a cloud on Mount Sinai to Moses. He spoke through vision after vision to the prophets. God's people had been regularly hearing from Him. But 400 years before this night, the last prophet put down his pen and God went silent. And suddenly, after four centuries of silence, heaven communicates with earth again. 
And angels come to announce the most momentous event in history. Okay, that's what's happening. And who do these angels speak to? Who are they sent to? The Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus? No. Well, at least Herod, king of Judea? No. Well, then Caiaphas, the high priest, the religious elite of Israel? No. To shepherds. <laughs> and that doesn't land on you so heavy, but to shepherds, one of the lowest rungs of the social ladder in Israel of that day. Shepherds were religiously unclean. If you can think back to one of Brother Anthony's recent messages from Mark, the scribes and the Pharisees had all these elaborate regulations for ceremonial cleansing. The shepherds are caring for animals in the wilderness. They can't keep up with all these cleansing rituals. Plus, caring for sheep was a seven-day-a-week job. They can't keep all the Sabbath regulations either. So they were permanently labeled unclean, just like the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the lepers. They are banned from synagogue worship. Not only are they religiously unclean, their reputation was pretty bad. You see, as, as shepherds moved around the countryside, finding new pasture for their sheep, they kind of had a habit of permanently borrowing things that didn't belong to them. So they were known as thieves. And their extended time out in the wilderness away from villages and towns just strengthened the distrust. Did you know shepherds were not allowed to testify in a court of law? <laughs> if they witnessed a crime, their testimony didn't count because people didn't trust them. How ironic. Banned from worship, yet they get to behold the worship of angels. Their testimony banned from court, yet God sends them as the first evangelist to testify of the birth of His Son. What is God doing? Well, exactly what Mary said last week, Luke chapter 1, 51-53. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. God is overturning the values of this world, rejecting the proud, the self-sufficient, and drawing near to the humble who feel their need of Him. I mean, if you think about it, despite the condescending view of the religious elite to shepherds, God portrays shepherding in His Scriptures as a pretty noble profession. <laughs> think of some of the great figures in Israel's history. Jacob, by the way, whose name is changed to Israel, the father of the nation, a shepherd. Moses, the deliverer from Egypt, the giver of the law, a shepherd. David, the great king after God's own heart, 
a shepherd. Some of the greatest figures in Israel's history, shepherds. God refers to Himself as a shepherd in the prophets. And what would Jesus call Himself? The Good Shepherd. And and just as we saw last week that Mary was not your average village girl, there are some hints here that these are not your average shepherds. They are caring for some special flocks. Bethlehem is six miles south of Jerusalem. We know from history that the flocks of this area were the ones used for temple sacrifice. So think about that. Year after year after year, these shepherds raising their little lambs, naming their sheep, and then herding them into Jerusalem where they will be slaughtered for sin. If anybody knew that the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for sin, these shepherds knew it. If anybody felt their deep need of a Savior to deal with sin once for all, These shepherds felt it. And also, if you think about it, does God in the Bible make a habit of sending angelic messengers to folks who have no interest in hearing from Him? To folks who are not looking for Him and longing for Him? That's a pretty good clue that these shepherds are probably like Simeon in the next passage, righteous and devout men looking for the Messiah. Speaking of the Messiah, the angels speak to these shepherds about a Savior, a Messiah found in the city of David. That message only has meaning to these shepherds if they already understood the significance of these terms from the prophets. This message is only good news of great joy to them if they already value what's being announced to them. And then one other hint as to their character. They immediately believe the angel's message and they hurry to go see its fulfillment. Which says that like Mary, their hearts are already disposed to believe God and to respond in obedience. So the recipients of this great message are surprising to Luke's readers But the messengers themselves are no less shocking. Look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Another great understatement in Scripture. These poor shepherds literally have an alien encounter. (laughs) They're just spending another quiet night out in the field, taking their turns, watching over the flock to protect them from predators, and suddenly the night is lit up by a light brighter than the sun, and an angel is standing there, or floating there, I don't know. This light is called the glory of the Lord. That word shone, it's shone around them. It's the same word Luke uses later in Acts of the light that struck Saul of Tarsus blind when Jesus spoke to him. So these shepherds are absolutely terrified, as they should be, as you and I would be. Well, this angel very mercifully calms their fears, delivers the message that we'll look at in a minute, and then what happens? Verse 13, 
Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. That word multitude is literally the word army. Army. Now, I know we sang earlier about angels sweetly singing over the plains. I love that song, but that's probably not what's happening here. Revelation uses the number 100 million angels. And then John says that's not enough, so tens of thousands more. An army of angels too vast to count. How many come on this night? I I don't know. But probably they filled the sky from horizon to horizon. An army. Don't forget, one angel wiped out all the firstborn of Egypt in one night. One angel wiped out the Assyrian army in one night. And this is a whole army of them. Folks, this is not a choir of pretty women with wings. Again, I'm sorry to ruin all those Christmas scenes for you. Their thunderous shout of praise to God would have shaken the earth. And yet no one seems to hear it but the shepherds. Angels. When these angels were created, when they opened their eyes, the first thing they saw was their Creator, the Son of God. They have beheld and they have guarded His glory from before Adam was formed from the dust. They have existed only to worship God and to do His will. Everything God does fascinates them and excites them. And there is no way to even imagine how delighted they are that their Creator has become a human baby. They're amazed. They sang for joy, Scripture says, as God the Son spoke this world into existence and filled it with life. And they watched in horror as we fell and filled this world with death. And there is no way to imagine their joy over the message that they get to deliver this night. That God has come to fix that. And here's where I want to bring in the complimentary reading earlier from Ezekiel 10 to further drive home what's happening this night. I I just wonder, as Luke was reading Ezekiel 10, did anybody wonder, what does this have to do with the birth of Jesus? What does this have to do with the Christmas season? Well, turns out it has a lot to do with it. When the first angel appears to the shepherds, what does it say lit up the night? The glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is dedicating the temple and the ark is brought into that temple, what filled the temple? The glory of the Lord. And in fact, His presence was so powerful, the priest couldn't enter. 
Who was on the ark, on the lid of that ark that represented the throne of God on which he rode into the temple? Cherubim, angelic beings. And after centuries of sin and rebellion, as we read earlier, Ezekiel is given a vision of the glory of the Lord departing the temple. And who escorts the glory of the Lord? as it leaves the temple. Cherubim, angelic beings. And now, 590 years later, the glory of the Lord returns to Israel. Escorted by angelic beings. But the glory of the Lord has returned in a most unexpected form. And so that leads us to the actual message of the angels. Our third point, the message. Verses 10 through 12. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Now this first angel uses three significant titles to describe the unique child who is born that night. The first title, he is Savior. Remember the meaning of Jesus that Gabriel gave to to both Mary and then to Joseph? Jesus, the Lord, is salvation, Gabriel says, for He will save His people from their sin. This child is God's way to rescue us from the justice we deserve. And notice, please, this good news of great joy is the news of a Savior. It doesn't say this night born to you is a therapist who will fix your marriage who will help you find satisfaction in your career, who will cure your disorder, who will affirm your value and help you find purpose. That is the modern misleading message that is really no good news at all. The good news of greatest joy must match our greatest need. And our greatest problem is a holy God who is against us in our rebellion. And therefore, our greatest need is a Savior. And our joy is so often tied to pleasant circumstances, isn't it? I want God to make my circumstances better. Then I'll be joyful. But why did God take our flesh? Why was He born in poverty and obscurity? Why did He live in sorrow and slander? Why did He die under wrath? To reconcile us to our God. And to give us great joy. Not momentary, but for all eternity. That's the message of these angels this night. Hmm. There's something else significant about this title, Savior, that we miss 2,000 years later, but Luke's readers would not have missed it. 
(laughs) Calling Christ Savior is shots fired directly at the Roman Emperor. Caesar Augustus, remember him? He was mentioned back in verse 1. He called himself the Son of God. Caesar Augustus, Son of God. Do you know what else he called himself? The Savior of the world, who would bring in an age of peace to the earth. So Luke is showing in no uncertain terms the Savior of the world is not the mighty Augustus in his Roman palace. It is a baby born in a feed trough. Luke is deliberately defying the dominant culture of his day and saying Greco-Roman civilization is not the solution to the world's problems. The stable government and judicial system of the Roman Empire under the protection of their mighty army will not bring lasting peace to a fallen world. And yet some followers of Christ today are still putting their hope in politics and power. But the good news of peace with God that produces peace among people was sent to humble shepherds who went to see a humble baby born in a barn, not a palace of power. Now Luke knew what he was doing when he wrote this. Defying Rome had painful consequences for the early Christians, didn't it? It cost them dearly to defy the dominant culture of their day. You know what I'm about to ask, don't you? What price are we prepared to pay in an increasingly hostile culture to show them their greatest need is a Savior in Jesus Christ the Lord. So this baby is first of all the Savior. Then this newborn child is also called the Christ, which was the Greek for Messiah, the Anointed One. And for the Jew, this carries so much promise. The Messiah is a promised prophet greater than Moses, the ultimate spokesman for God. He's the promised priest greater than Aaron, who would perfectly restore finally the relationship between God and humanity. And he is the promised king greater than David, who would rule in perfect righteousness and justice, not for a few years, but forever and ever. So He is the Savior. He is the Christ. And then comes the most shocking title of all. This newborn child is also the Lord. Now in the Greek, it's as if Christ Lord is just a hyphenated title. Christ Lord. Luke has already used that word Lord 20 times in chapter 1 to refer to God. So here's the biggest shocker of all. Luke's Jewish readers, they would have expected to read the Christ or the Messiah of the Lord. But what they read instead was the Christ, the Messiah, 
is the Lord. Some of you with some gray hairs like me might remember the famous talk show host Larry King. Passed away a couple of years ago. And way, way back in the 1990s, Larry King was a guest on the David Letterman late night show. And Letterman asked King, he said, of all the people in history, who would you most like to interview? Without any hesitation, Larry said, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Letterman responded, what would you ask him? And again, as if he'd already thought about it, King replied, I'd ask him, were you really born of a virgin? And there was suddenly this awkward silence that filled the whole studio. And David Letterman looked into the camera and said, well, we'll be right back. But Larry King nailed the crucial question, didn't he? The question that a world at war with God doesn't want to deal with. Did God really invade our reality? And yes, the eyewitnesses testify He was born of a virgin. And yes, He is the Lord. He is God in human flesh. And that changes everything. That gives absolute truth and authority to everything he said and everything he did. Well, after speaking of this infant in such exalted titles, he is God's Savior. He is God's Messiah. He is God, the Lord. Now the angel has to prepare the shepherds for what they're going to see. So he says, okay, this is going to be the sign that you found the right one. How how do you know you have found the right baby? You'll find him wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. I'm sure there were a few other babies born in Bethlehem that night, and they too would have been wrapped in claws, but they were going to find only one baby born in a barn, sleeping in a feed trough. Now maybe the shepherds needed this sign, this description, for one of two reasons. Not sure which one it might have been. I think if I was a shepherd, I would have been intimidated to go look for God who's come as the Messiah. Okay, we're going to go find God who's come as prophet, priest, and king. They're probably picturing some palace where men of their social standing were not welcome. No, the angel says, this Savior was born for you in a barn. A humble Savior for humble shepherds. But, you know, the opposite is also possibly true. These shepherds might have been a bit put off by the scandal of God born in a barn. This isn't how God's supposed to act. And so the angel assures them, guys, don't be shocked. This is the fulfillment of all God's promises. You know, it's interesting that manger is mentioned three times in these 20 verses, verse 7, verse 12, verse 16, as if Luke wants to highlight the startling contrast between who this is and how He entered our world. 
So that's the first message of the angels. As we saw earlier, suddenly an army of angels fills the sky to add their final exclamation mark to the first angel's message. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. And of course, their shout of praise has been so often romanticized and misunderstood. This peace on earth is not the peace of a snowy winter scene. It's it's not even worldwide peace that was promised by Caesar. No, this angelic army is rejoicing that God has come to rescue and to restore rebellious humanity. That the world is at war with their Creator, but rather than wipe us out in His wrath, the Creator came to make peace. That God has come to show favor, to assure us of His kind intentions, to assure us of His mercy toward us, to assure us of His willingness to forgive and to save. Glory to God in the highest of all God's works that bring Him glory. In creation, in providence, Christ's incarnation would bring Him the highest glory in His work of redemption. And that's it. The angelic army returns home. The light of heaven fades to darkness again. Now what? How do the shepherds respond? Their response is such a perfect picture of all who come to Christ. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, verse 15, when the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. First response, they believed the message they heard. They believed. Let's go see this thing that has happened. They haven't seen it yet, but they believe that it has. No doubt about the angel's message. And we see this time after time. When God awakens faith in the heart of a sinner, there is a sudden certainty about His offer in the Gospel. It was a lot of fun earlier this week talking with a student. And she had heard the stories of Jesus for year after year. But something changed this year. Suddenly there's certainty. This is true. And Jesus is not only the Savior, He's my Savior. So they believed the message. Second, they hurried to act on the message. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. By the way, their statement in verse 15 conveys a very strong urgency. The the Greek is like literally, come on guys, let's go. Come on, let's go. And then verse 16 says, they hurried. When someone has heard the gospel and faith is stirred, there's no hesitancy. Or at least there shouldn't be. God is offering peace now. Mercy is being extended now. Everybody ought to rush to find this Savior. What about you this morning? 
And I think especially of some of you older children or teenagers, how many times have you heard the good news of the gospel? Do you believe it? Then what are you waiting on? There should be some urgency to make sure that this Jesus Christ is your Savior. They hurried to act on the message. And then third, they made the message known to others. (laughs) Do we ever see more zealous evangelists than those who've just had their heart changed by the Savior? Verse 17, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Literally, as they were going or wherever they went, they told. Now, do you think that only applies to that night or the next morning in Bethlehem? And then they stopped talking about it. I doubt it. Do you remember where they're taking their flocks ultimately? To the temple in Jerusalem. And I can just picture a bunch of shepherds showing up at the temple telling anybody who will listen to them, hey, you are not going to believe what happened last night. Could be why Simeon and Anna in the next story are expecting, why they're looking for Jesus to show up at the temple. But you know what? Sadly, they might have been the only ones who listened to the shepherd. Do you suppose any of the religious leaders at the temple heard about these shepherds and what they were saying about this child? Did they hurry to Bethlehem to see? No. They told the Magi where to go look, but they didn't bother to go look for themselves. They didn't care. They felt no need for a Savior. But the shepherds told... They told anybody that would listen, and then in verse 18 it says, all who heard it wondered, literally were amazed. Now that doesn't mean everybody who heard it believed. It could mean they thought they were crazy. Angels speaking to unclean shepherds? God born in a barn? Yeah, right. Didn't stop the shepherds. They were willing to sound crazy to spread this good news. Again, shepherds were not trusted to testify in a court of law. God chose them to be the first evangelists of His Son's birth. Do you know who else was not trusted to testify in a court of law? Women. Who did God choose to be the first witnesses of His Son's resurrection? Women. You see, it's not the identity of the witness that gives authority to the gospel. It's the truth of the message. Notice, they made known the statement which had been told them about the child. And Paul reminds the proud Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, the gospel is not only a foolish message to the world, but God has chosen to use the foolish means of proclaiming that foolish message through a bunch of weak nobodies. Us. Why? So that when that foolish message 
given through disrespected messengers, becomes the power of God unto salvation, He alone gets the glory. So, these simple shepherds have been given special revelation from angels about the Savior's birth. Other than Mary and Joseph, they're the first ones to see Him and to understand who He is. Now what? Well, so now they left their flocks and they devoted the rest of their lives as full-time evangelists spreading the good news. Wait, is that what verse 20 says? The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. That's the fourth part of their response. They believed the message. They hurried to act on it. They told anyone who would listen about it. And then they went back to work praising God. J.C. Ryle points out the honor given to these common working men to be witnesses of the Savior's arrival. You know, I've, I've seen this more than once that that when we are awakened to the gospel and, and we're overwhelmed by His love for us and His grace to us, some of us can come to this misguided conclusion that I want to pay Jesus back by devoting my life to full-time ministry. Or if I really want my life to count for eternity, I should devote myself to full-time service, either as a pastor or, or maybe a missionary. And God may call some of us to that and praise Him if He does. But do you know, so often God just wants us to go back to work, glorifying God in the workplace. Praising Him as a teacher, as a nurse, as a carpenter, as a mommy and homemaker, as a sales rep, as a software engineer. Just go back and glorify Him. So in closing, what was the climax of the angel's message? A multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. How does the response of the shepherds end? They went back glorifying and praising God. Do you see, Luke's story is not primarily about angels or shepherds. The point of the story is the glory and praise that God deserves for intervening to save us from our self-destruction. The angels praised and glorified God, but God didn't become an angel. God didn't come to save angels. He came to save us. How much more should we praise Him? Will we let unredeemed angels outpraise us this Advent season? The shepherds glorified and praised God, and they only saw the Savior in the manger. How much more should we praise Him looking back to see our Savior on the cross? Oh, I pray that, that we would fill this Advent season with our praises to our God who took on our flesh to be our Savior in order that we might eternally enjoy all the blessings of having peace with Him.
Let's pray. Oh, Father, I do rejoice in the message of these angels. The most shocking, the most unexpected message ever. That you would become one of us. That you would come to accomplish the peace that we never could. That you would come to save us from our self-destruction. Oh God, I pray for anyone in this room who's not yet trusted Christ as their Savior, that they would hasten in urgency to find Him as their Savior. And for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, God, may we find peace in every circumstance because He has made us right with You and eternal joy awaits us. Lord, may we find Him to be our great joy and our soul satisfaction. And Lord, would You give us courage to defy our culture, to give them a message that they don't want and they won't value. But God, would You give them eyes to see and ears to hear that they might join us in praising Christ for all eternity. Do this, God, for your Son's glory. He is worthy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.